Thanks, Gwen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to John 4. Before we start that and read a story about Jesus embarrassing a woman, I want to embarrass a woman and her husband. Um, Patrick and Allison Lathane have been serving our church for more than seven years. They've been members here for more than seven years. They're going to be moving to Michigan this week. And um, they have been involved in global missions really faithfully, especially focusing with our, um, our work in refugee resettlement. They've been involved in marriage mentoring. They've been small group leaders. They've worked in early childhood kids ministry. They've worked in the benevolence ministry. They've worked in the media ministry. And um, you may have seen Patrick up here, if you were here for the Ephesians series where we did Walls of Hostility, giving a testimony about his experience in racism. You've also maybe seen their daughter, Ruby. She's slight of frame, very dark hair. She's 19. She speaks very authoritatively when she reads the Bible. Um, That's their daughter, but they're going to be moving to Michigan. And I just want to thank them for their service here. Would you guys please stand so we can thank you for your service to us? The Bible is very clear that we should at times lift up those that we should be honoring among us who behave in exemplary serving ways. And I hate to steal their treasure in heaven, but um, (laughs) you were needed for pedagogy. I'm sorry. Um, You and John 4, if you have a Bible. I'm going to read this a little quickly because I'm going to read like 40-something verses, okay? And then I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, and hopefully by the end of the sermon, we will get to John 4, Okay. When the Pharisees heard Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples, when the Lord learned this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did his sons and flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him like a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who you speak to am he. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see the man, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and the other reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labors. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Savior of the world. Okay. If I start talking too fast for you, just go like this to suggest that maybe I can talk a little slow, okay? We started John's Gospel several weeks ago in chapter 1, and one of the things that came out at the very beginning of the drama is that God's redemption in the person of the Son of God came into creation to bring salvation, and those who he had created did not recognize him. And so there's this immediate drama set up between the God who freely gives his one Son the Word to dwell in grace and truth and to reveal his glory among creation, and that his own, that creation, doesn't recognize him. But anybody who does, he gives the right to become his children, sons and daughters of God. And at the end, by the end of the chapter, he calls disciples to follow him. So a disciple is somebody who follows a teacher who they are learning from. They believe in him enough to set the whole path of their life into following this person so they can learn and learn and learn and learn and learn because that is the most valuable thing in their life. If you're a teacher's disciple, you're not doing really anything else but following that teacher and learning from him. Everything else is auxiliary. Everything else, you're fitting into your life around following and learning from that teacher. Does that make sense? That's going to become important again later. You get to chapter 2, and this person who is the Christ does two miracles. One miracle is nurturing. It's about human flourishing. It's about the good. It's about beauty. It's about flourishing, fulfillment. The other is a violent destruction of corruption towards justice with fire blazing in his eyes. The beauty of God in his favor and the wrath of God towards injustice, especially when that injustice is keeping people from him. And so he turns water into wine, and he blesses a wedding with everything and the very best that he has. And then he clears the temple, right? And it says at the end of that chapter, it says, and 
Many believed in him because of the signs. And then it says, but Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew it was in a man. Meaning, he knew that people could see the miracle and go, oh, I believe at this guy. But they don't really believe in him. Not really. And it leaves the question open. There's all this talk about belief already. And this belief stuff is going to go all the way through John's gospel. Believe, 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 believe. In fact, I, my little catch line for the series is, what you believe might be the most important thing about you. Right? And so the, the question arises, what does it mean? What does it mean to believe in the Son of God? So that you believe in him? So that he believes in you? So that what you call belief is belief? And so that it has the results promised. Right? Later in John's gospel—I'm sorry, before we get there. John is not just creating a negative message of our sin and shame and brokenness and separateness from God and the appropriate wrath of God that would go along with that and our possible redemption and our forgiveness if we believe in Jesus. He's also painting a larger positive picture of what all human beings need, a picture of what life would really look like. And he says, listen, you can think of your life kind of in three ways, okay? Everybody has to figure out how to make their way through life. There are all these kind of structures and systems and people and actions, and every kid has to figure out, when there's just a little kid, like, how do I navigate this? How do I navigate this thing with my parents? How do I navigate this thing with my stupid siblings? How do I navigate this? How do I navigate school? How do I navigate these other kids? How do I navigate all these pressures and difficulties and problems and choices and uses? And like, how do I, like, what, what is the way to get through life well? Right? We all have a way we walk on, right? And then the second is, what orders my life? Like, everybody's calling me to other things. There's all these things I'm interested in that I'm trying to grasp. There's all these questions I have in my own soul. It feels like there's like eight different voices about which way I should go. I have all these desires and longings and cravings and hopes in my conscience and my cravings are often at odds with each other. Is there anything that like orders everything else? That gives me integrity, singularity all the way through. So that even if the world is broken, I'm not broken from within, right? Something like the truth, right? And then— can you live in a world like this and be satisfied and refreshed? And could that happen continually? In this world, in, not, not another one, but in this world where people behave the way they do, where they act the way they do, where you are the way you are, that could something happen where you could walk through life and pretty continually feel refreshed and satisfied of soul? Right? Now, later in John's gospel, there's this place where Jesus is talking with the disciples, and Thomas asks him a question. He's like, he's like Jesus is like, you're going to find the way. He's like, Jesus, we don't know the way. We don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what's the way? And he's like, listen, you guys, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's, like, listen, that is a great, like, believe in Jesus first, because you're like, look, you better believe it. He, he's like all these things, right? But here's the thing. Jesus is frustrated. He's frustrated. Why is he frustrated? This, this is a new verse, right? This verse doesn't appear anywhere in John before that. It's all of a sudden out of chapter 14, he just drops it on, right? No, the reason he's frustrated is because he has been trying to say these three themes. The whole gospel, Jesus' whole ministry. John has been dropping these on us from the very beginning. And in fact, he does them in chapters 3 and 4. It's just easy to miss. Think about this for a second. Jesus does his first great miracle, and he anticipates his last great miracle, his resurrection. And then there are three major human encounters. 
And then the second sign. Why these three encounters? Why does John include these three encounters between the first miracle and the second major miracle? The second sign. The answer is this. What is Nicodemus looking for? What is the question in the story with Nicodemus? Right? He can't see and he can't enter what? The way. He doesn't know the way. He's confused, right? You get to John, and John's disciples are like, look, you should be the most important person, not Jesus. You're the one who said Jesus was important, right? Which is a crisis of power against truth. What is the truth? And then you get to the woman. Do you remember, you remember Isaiah 55, where, Jesus is, where God is talking about the time of the Messiah? And he says, listen, don't waste your life thirsty, pursuing drink and food that can't satisfy. Come to me and freely, without cost, I will give you the richest wine and the greatest food, and you will eat until you're content. And I will, if you listen to me, and I will give you life through my servant David. David had already died. His servant David is the coming Messiah who will bring life, who is exemplified in this feast, this drinking and eating. You get to chapter 4, and what happens? There's a discourse around a well from which you get water, which you would normally drink, and then his disciples come back and say, eat something. So like, I don't need food. I'm too satisfied to eat. You get it? The way, the truth, and the life. That's why Jesus is frustrated in chapter 14. He's been saying this all along, right? And what he's trying to help people understand is that what it means to believe in Jesus means to believe in the Son of God such as that you actually see and believe how he is the spiritual way, how his word and testimony is the word of truth which orders your life, and how believing in him and actually adoring him and caring about him and what he cares about and so doing what he has called us to do, that is doing the will of God, is satisfying or the way of life. And that if those three things come together, there is a fullness of that life that is capable of giving us the life abundant, the true life that God has promised. And if we don't believe in him like that, we will believe in him like the people at the end of John 2 who believe in him because they see something and they kind of believe Adam, sort of, but they don't really believe in him. And because of it, there's nothing happening in them. And they don't really follow him. They don't become his disciples. They don't find out where this goes. Right? All right. We did this already. So, first thing is structures and credentials aren't the way spiritual rebirth is. One of the things that happens to us and that we go through when we first come into the world is we have to figure out what on earth is going on. And what we end up realizing is that there's all these structures around us. Some of which are physical, like buildings, but a lot of them are like cultural and relational and personal and informational. They're all over the place. There's hundreds of them. And we call those a culture, right? And so people navigate all these things. And what happens is, is every single one of those different systems has its own game. It has its own knowledge. It has its own credentials. And a lot of those systems are not conscious about God. They're in creation, they're doing their thing, and they have all their own rules, and they're not listening to the Lord, and they're not following His will. And so what you realize as a kid is you're like, okay, I have to play all these games. 
This is how the world is. This is reality, right? I've, I've, told, I've talked to people about the gospel numerous times before, and I'll say, look, this is, this is, this is reality. This is what God says. And, and they'll say something like, Pastor Nick, I, like, I live in the real world. There's this really great um, essay. If you've, if you've never read Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple, I recommend it. But there's this one essay in it where, because he, he spends half of his time in a prison for violent criminals and half of his time in the mental ward of a hospital for people mostly who have attempted suicide. So he's sitting with a young woman who's 16 who's attempted suicide. And she's like, he's, he's like, listen, you've now had six boyfriends, all who have beaten you mostly to death, and now you've tried to kill yourself. Maybe we could try to find like a different kind of guy. Maybe a guy that isn't going to beat you. And, he, and, he, and what he says to him is, Dr. Dalrymple, I live in the real world. And he goes, darling, do you think that when I leave this hospital, I go home and beat on my wife? And she, and she looked at him, and, she, and she's like, no, I guess not. And he's like, there are more real worlds than what you think is the real world. You understand? The, 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 the very definition of not believing in Jesus' way is thinking that the way, all the different ways in this world are the way, and there are other ways, and there isn't a way that is higher and better and greater and truer and fuller that we have to believe in. And here's the thing is, you, we've all been cooking in this world. We've all been like saturated in its juices and we can't see anything else. And so Nicodemus, who is at, at the top of the structural heap, shows up, right? He has all the credentials you could possibly have. He have. He's the teacher of Israel. He's at the highest level of the most important authority. He is the Pharisee, right? And he, is, he has made it. And so he's ready to platform Jesus because he can see that Jesus is from God. Not because he can spiritually see it, but because he saw them. He's hearing about the miracles. So he's like, well, if you can do miracles, God's probably with you. That's great. You're believing at Jesus. But what would it look like to believe in Jesus, right? And Jesus is like, look, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, right? Which, of course, is impossible. That's on purpose, right? And then he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. You can't go to your mother's womb a second time. He's like, okay. And just as impossible is you entering the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. To which Nicodemus just gets more frustrated because he can't figure out what's happening. And then Jesus says a quote in John 3 that I think is mostly misunderstood because we want to think about how the new birth happens. But this verse says this. Jesus says, you should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everybody born of the Spirit. And then Nicodemus says, well, how can this be? Now, the way most people will often read this is that that statement about the wind is about how we experience the new birth that God gives us if we believe in Jesus. That if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit somehow comes into your life blowing and swishing in such a way that you don't totally understand, but you know the result is, is that you'll be, you'll receive the new birth. You'll have the Holy Spirit, and maybe you can't feel it at all, but it happened. If you believe, it happened. That's not what it means. Now, that's mostly true, but that's not what this verse means. What this verse means is this. You're hearing about my miracles, okay? You can know that, like, this guy that was sick is better. And you can look at that and you can go, that makes sense to me. But I don't make sense to you. You see, the person born of the Spirit par excellence that Nicodemus is interacting with is Jesus. And Jesus makes no sense to him. He's like, listen, unless you're born of the Spirit, 
Anybody who is born of the Spirit makes about as much sense to you as the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. You don't know what it's doing. You don't know what principle it's working on. None of it makes sense to you, but you can see the trees go like this. You can see that. You can see the practical effects. Like, so if a Christian loves somebody because of the supernatural power of God. You can see the act of love. If someone shuts their mouth and listens to you because they care about you and not themselves, and they don't objectify you, and they see you as a real person, not just a means to some kind of end, and you're like, man, no, nobody ever listens to me. You saw the miracle. You saw the tree, but you, did, you have no idea why this is happening, or what's happening, or how it's happening, or where it comes from. And Jesus is like, listen, Nicodemus, you're never going to understand why any of this happens unless you are born of the Spirit. Your credentials, your system, doesn't matter. You've spent your whole life getting to the top of a heap that is in some ways significant, but when it comes to God, it has no significance at all. Right? Jesus is saying, look, there's only one system that matters and only one credential that matters when it comes to seeing the kingdom and entering the kingdom, finding the way. And that is, you have to be born of the Spirit, meaning you have to be like re-brought into a world and learn to see everything completely different because you've believed in the Son of God. And you've experienced a spiritual rebirth that has done something in your conscience and in your soul and in your heart and your mind that's transforming you out of conformity with the world into a renewal of your mind such that you can see God's good, pleasing, and perfect will everywhere. It's completely contradictory to most of what's happening in the structures and credentials and actions of society, but you see it and you can act according to it. You'll make no sense to anybody and you will enter the kingdom and see the kingdom everywhere you'll find the way. Get it? I hope so, because that's the last thing we're going to say about this. Okay. Second thing is— uh, I, I'm going to skip that. Sorry. There's so much, so much in the Bible. Okay. Um, two, popularity and marriage don't define you the truth of us. Okay. One of the things you get to in the second half of chapter three is this encounter with John's disciples. So it's not even a direct encounter with Jesus. Jesus is over there— and his disciples are baptizing people, and people are leaving John the Baptist's group, which is the most popular and important group, and going over to Jesus' group. Jesus is literally the person John has just platformed, right? And now people are going over to him. And his disciples are really upset about this, right? Because not only is John one of the most popular people in Israel, he deserves it. He's one of the only people that is massively popular that actually deserves to be that popular. I mean, this is a guy that Jesus says is the greatest man on earth. He, I mean, he says there's nobody born of a woman who's greater than John the Baptist, right? And not only that, he proves it, right? Like that picture of John the Baptist, that's not just like a halo around his head. That is his severed head in a plate, right? Because he had the gall to tell the king and the king's mistress and her grown daughter, who he couldn't, couldn't sleep with, and who was a gold digger and wasn't. And you think the king killed him? It wasn't just the king killing him. It was the vindictiveness of those women who contrived a weak-minded and vain king to kill him. Right? And he could have seen that coming. He made everybody angry. He told the soldiers what to do. He told the Pharisees what to do. He told the king what to do. And he was right, and everybody knew he was right because he was just talking about justice. Throwing away your wife and marrying your brother's wife isn't allowed even if you're the king. If you're a Pharisee, don't collect more than you're supposed to. If you're a soldier, use your rights of violence 
to protect people from the violent. Don't use it to extort money out of people. Everybody knows that's right. But he had the guts to say it until they killed him. He was the greatest man. Okay, and so he has a popularity and a following, and he deserves it, and he's losing it. And so his disciples were like, John, what are you going to do about this? You're losing your popularity. You're losing your platform. You're losing your power. You're losing everything that you've worked for. You deserve it. What's going on? And John's like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. This is fantastic. Right? Um, okay, this will be a real stretch. Okay, but let me give you an example. Let's just say I was the greatest pastor in America. <laughs> let's just stop there in this thought experiment for a moment. Let's All right, and so let's just say that was true. Um, and somebody emerged who was better than me. Okay? And I brought him to the church and had him preach. I was like, look, this is Billy Bob, preacher guy. And the guy, he was great. And every, you all knew he was great. And you all knew not only was he great, he was better than me, right? And then I was like, listen, I don't know if you guys know that he's going to be the new lead pastor at Door Creek, across town. And it's going to be wonderful. And, like, and then all of a sudden, like three months later, there's like 27 people here, right? And Dave comes up and says, like, Nick, they're all going over. They, I mean, they went all to Billy Bob's. This is crazy. Can you believe these people? And we, what are we going to do? I was like, well, hopefully we're all going to go over to that church. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to go. Like, I, you know? You see, but the problem is, is that when you get into these systems, even when you do stuff for the right reasons, it gets bound up with other things that are caught up in those systems of the world and its credentials and it's so on. So like, I've been a pastor here 13 years. I own a house. I get a salary. My kids, like, expect a certain, like, lifestyle, I suppose you could say, right? Like, this, and like, so now, all that stuff is kind of caught up with my life. And so like, that can get involved in this. So what if all of a sudden the church starts shrinking for a good reason? Could I get on board with that? Do you remember what I said about the nature of a disciple? Everything else has to fit into their life on the basis of following that teacher wherever he goes. Right? So if, if you have a boat in, on the Sea of Galilee and the teacher goes inland, <laughs> you got a choice to make. You understand? Like the boat's well and good when the, preach, when, the, when the teacher is teaching on the shore and you go out and fish and whatever. But the minute he goes inland, you got to decide, are you following the teacher or are you staying with your boat? And you see, the reality of the truth is, is that it's either truth or power, friends. And either you're defined by the truth that defines you or you will grasp yourself with the power you think you can get a hold of. One of the things that you hear a lot about these days is um, being true to yourself. You should be true to yourself. Should you be true to yourself? Right? And the answer is, yes, you should be true to yourself. And you should definitely not be true to yourself. Right? Frederick Douglass said this once, I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicule of others, rather than be false and to cure my own abhorrence. Right? What is he saying? He's saying, listen, I'm going to be true to myself. In contrast to what? In contrast to other people trying me to be what they want me to be, Right? And what does it mean, therefore, to be true to myself? That is, he, to tell the truth or to be honest with himself and to do what he knows is right, not to sell out to the pressures of others. Now, if that's what being true to yourself means, you should definitely be true to yourself. Right? Now, 
Another person, not quite as sagacious, a singer named Aaliyah, says this, I, I stay true to myself. Okay, I shouldn't mock her too much. I'm sorry. I, I stay true to myself and my style, and I'm always pushing myself to be aware of that and be original. Okay. Um, first of all, the style we have in this picture could not be less original. Okay? A young woman who has very specific makeup to make her eyes look bigger, and her eyebrows made so that her eyes will look bigger, so she'll look more sexually attractive to you, with the right amount of lip gloss on, with her head tilted in just the perfect way, at the exact angle that she's been practicing since she was a little girl. And I cut most of her boobs out of the picture because that was the main original thing focused on in this picture. And I don't know if you've seen women lately, but that's not a particularly original thing. Both of these people have lived up to C.S. Lewis's dictum. Seek to be original. You'll be just like everybody else. Seek to tell the truth as clearly and as honestly as you possibly can and to live by it, and you will find yourself to be accidentally original in the end. Right? One of the things that John is reckoning with is that if he were to be true to himself, that is, his interests, his cravings, his desires, he would fight with Jesus' popularity, try to keep the popularity for himself, so that he would still be well-known. People would listen to him. He would have influence. Right? But what that would really lead to is a counterfeit self. The reason he's popular is because he has the merit, because he tells the truth, and he doesn't care about power. He couldn't be less true to himself if he was true to himself in that way. And so he would be a counterfeit person, and he would engage in tyranny, and his mind would be filled with diversions and delusions because he doesn't want to see the truth. But if he chooses to be true to himself, in subjecting himself to the truth, then what he's going to find is something authentic, like, no, this is good, not bad. I can become less, and he can become greater. And when he becomes greater, and I become less, I will become more. He'll have integrity. He's one person. He, he's the same person. When he was popular, when he wasn't popular, he's the same person. Before he got killed, and everybody thought he was great, and when his head was chopped off, he was the same person. He was singular. He had integrity. He knew who he was. He knew who he was before God. He knew what his purpose was. And what that built in him was virtue. The greatest possible strength of self in goodness toward God. So be careful what you mean by authenticity and being true to yourself, and know that the only way to be true to yourself is to find the way in the truth. And just as the way is the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, who you should believe in, the truth is also shown to us in this worldly world by the enfleshing of the Son of God, the Logos, the truth before us, to order us under his truth so we know where everything goes. We can tell ourselves the truth in authenticity. We can have integrity, and we can grow in virtue. Right? But then the question that people, I think, sometimes struggle with is, that sounds great, Nick. Am I just going to be unhappy? <laughs> right? What's the result of all this? Like, does this just mean we can all, like, be good people or something? And the answer is, no, no. The end goal here has always been divine life. And not abstractly. When I say divine life, I don't just mean, imagine yourself on a cloud with a Mai Tai, you know? <laughs> or a pina colada, whichever you prefer. And there's a stewardess that comes with a little blanket. And that's not what I mean, right? The divine life 
Jesus is talking about is a well within you that flows up like a spring. Right? It's not an abstraction. It is an emotional reality. Okay? Now, that leads to this. Self-managing control does not satisfy the soul with life. Self-managing control, you managing your own life, you doing what you want, you grasping things you can manage, you sorting things out, you picking the path, you contorting, twisting, conniving, doing whatever you think might work, not paying attention to your conscience or to God, but doing that which is pragmatically helpful to get you where you want to go, to get your earthly salvation, is not going to bring you in the soul to divine life. It will bring you to thirst and isolation and shame and but worshiping God and doing his will will bring you life, right? Where do I get that from, Nick? What are you talking about? Well, I think it's important to recognize that— Oh, we're not going to talk about that. I did that at the beginning. So it has become popular in modern times to recast the woman at the well as a kind of female victim of the patriarchy. This is a, this is a hurt woman. This is a woman who's struggling. This is a woman who has feelings, right? She comes to the well at the sixth hour, which is noon. It's hot in Judea. Who would do that unless you were avoiding people, right? She doesn't like it, right? And when we, when we find out her sexual history, like, clearly things have gone wrong. Like, nobody goes through that many relationships and isn't hurting. This woman is clearly hurting. She's been a victim. She probably didn't even have a choice who she's going to marry, right? And these— all these men have been foisted upon her. She's a poor thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, I feel that, right? Okay. That is a terrible way to interpret this passage. Only the most, okay, I'm not going to say the kind of person who could interpret that way, but you got to have a bunch of assumptions that are very, very right now in America, that are very suburban, probably Caucasian, and very female come into this passage to get anything like that, okay? That is not what this passage means at all. One of the fundamental basics of biblical interpretation is that it doesn't mean what it couldn't have meant. It doesn't mean what it couldn't have meant. Nobody in the first century would have read this and been like, that poor woman, okay? All of the people who have to believe in Jesus in these three encounters are bad people. Do you understand? They're all bad people, just like you and me. Do you understand? They don't believe. They don't get it. They're on the wrong path. They don't understand. And she is here because she has the opposite of divine life. The divine life that Jesus wants to give, she is the antithesis of. Do you understand? Listen, if she had two husbands, maybe, okay? But she said five husbands. Do you understand? What we're probably looking at here is a very attractive woman who, is, was, who knew she was pretty from the day she was born, knew it had power from early pubescent, maybe also was abused in her, probably was so that she could be as cynical as she needed to be to run through five husbands, okay? It's much more likely that she is a really hot gold digger conniver than she's a hurt woman, but she's actually probably, and we know she is, both. But when Jesus says to her, go get your husband, he's not connecting with her pain. He's confronting the thing she most wants to hide and that keeps her perpetually from experiencing the life of God. 
She thinks she can run her life. And if this man's not good enough, maybe this one will be good enough. And this one isn't good enough, maybe this one will be good enough. And if this one isn't good enough, I'm just going to keep swiping right or left. I don't even know which way you're supposed to swipe. (laughs) Until I find somebody I like well enough to stick with. And no one is ever going to be that person. And so as the young people say, she's thirsty. (laughs) I realize that's a partial misuse of that metaphor. Okay. People know that what they see as their own salvation, what they want their life to be like, what they want to happen, tribally, personally, whatever, whatever you want to say, right? They realize that there is a way in which the rightly formed conscience, what you know is good, what you know is right, and what you want to get for yourself, part companies. And when you look into the future with your own capacity for prediction, and you say, if I do this and this and this and this and this, I can get there. Even if it hurts my conscience, even if it's not the right, the right thing what the church people would want, you know. But like, I'll get what I, I'll get what I want. I'm going to do it. When you do that, what actually is happening is you're cutting yourself off from divine life. You're moving in the opposite direction. Because divine life comes through spiritual and moral fulfillment. Spiritual, the way, which is the way of being born of the Spirit, and the truth. (laughs) And mainly the truth there means what is real and what is right. And so the life of God, his existence, the way he sees things and the way he does things, and the truth, what is good, right, true, and beautiful, merge together in this beautiful thing that flows into the human heart, abiding in the conscience, filling the mind, and then flowing through the emotions for refreshment of soul and satisfaction of life. And when instead you look to your assets and you look to your desires and cravings and you structure your life and you work through it and you connive and you work and you do and you act and you do, right? And you're just good enough so you don't get ostracized, but it's just bad enough to get to be the free rider on the system to get what you want to get to. You may get what you want. It's reasonably likely the people in this room will get what they want. What you won't get is a spring flowing in your inner self, flowing up to eternal life. And you won't get the internal satisfaction, which is a spiritual food, that even after, after you've walked miles and the woman didn't give you a drink before she ran off to get people, you, neither your thirst nor your hunger is overwhelming so that you spurn food for the satisfaction of God that lives inside your soul because you got to participate in his will. That's what you will never have. And one of the reasons why our culture is so full of anxiety and depression and self-hatred and shame and all these kinds of things, look, look, produce as many pharmaceuticals as you want. Put going to a counselor 16 times a week into everybody's health plan. Pay for it on the federal level until we go bankrupt and our dollar is worthless. And you will not solve this problem. There is one well in which this water exists. And just like everything Nicodemus was trying to do and everything all we do in human endeavor is inherently in some ways good relative to creation, without the way of the Spirit, the centrality of the truth defining our identity and our virtue, and then that flowing into doing the will of God and embracing it with all of our hearts, damn the results, whether we get beheaded or crucified or kicked out of the Sanhedrin because we take Jesus' body and do something beautiful with it after the Romans had treated it like garbage, which is what Nicodemus ultimately does. 
damn the results. Because in God there is life. Right? So, what ends up happening here is Jesus has this interaction with this woman, right? And at first he starts with the truth. They go back and forth to pique her interest, right? She st- he starts with her felt need. She's thirsty. She's, she, she's physically thirsty. She's also awkward. This is a strange thing going on between them. She doesn't think he should talk to her because he's a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan. The disciples don't think he should talk to her because she's a woman, right? And yet, he's like, look, there is a water that fills the soul. And she's like, well, I want this water. And so you see what Jesus does? She, so she says she wants the life. Okay, Jesus says, let's backtrack. <laughs> let's start with the truth. Go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. Thank you, Captain Evasive. Right? That's true. Right? You've had five husbands. You're living with a guy. Um, you're a bad person. Right? And she's like, oh, now listen, she doesn't dispute this. She realizes this is exactly the thing God would put his finger on if he was sitting at the well. Why? Because she assumes he's a prophet. Oh, sir, I see that you're a prophet. <laughs> she, she doesn't even like go, well, who are you to judge me? She's like, yeah, okay, you got me. <laughs> okay, I can see that God is here because that's what I would have loved. That's the one thing in my life I would like to hide from you, and you're not going to let me hide it from you. Okay? So let me flatter you and be evasive. So she's not really ready to be truthful yet. But she wants to move on, so let's move on. Hey, um, the Jews say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We worship on Mark Gerizim. Like, this is a big problem. The worship thing is a thing between us. She's like, listen, I could sort that out for you in that salvation is going to come from the Jews. However, the real focus here is, is that God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So A, so we, we're not going to get away from the truth thing. We're never, you're never going to worship God. You're never going to belong to God. You're never going to get this living water unless you submit to the fact that you're going to have to be honest with God. And you've been lying to yourself and people for years. And, but if you want to be a worshiper, the question is not, are you going to go to Jerusalem or are you going to go to Margarizim? The question is, are you going to be honest with God and honest with yourself? And then, are you going to open yourself to God's spiritual way? What is actually valuable to him? What he is doing? How he sees things? What matters to him? Even if it means your, your short-term humiliation or long-term death. And I don't know if you know this, but in the Eastern Church tradition, I think her name is Fotia, Maiden of Light. In the Eastern tradition, this woman was baptized with the name Giver of Light because she did all this witnessing, and she's, she was ultimately martyred or killed. So that's the church history end of this story. I don't know if it's true. Okay? He's like, so spirit and truth have to go together. The will of God, how he acts in the world, that creation is under the real creator, that these things are happening, that there's a totally different way to live, to be able to see the kingdom of God and what I'm doing and the truth. And those intermingled have to find their home in you. And if they do, the living water will spring up in you. Not just like something you take a drink of, but so that the well is inside of you. And it's not just a well that you have to, people have to, you know, take and have like 15 yards of rope to get down to. He's like, like, it will bubble all the way up. It'll pour out onto the ground. That is, it will be so abundant, not only will it fill you, but it will fill others, and it will not deplete you as it fills others. One of the things that I see in the, in the church, in the local church everywhere, I see this in missionaries now too, and in pastors, and all over the world, is this sense of profound emotional depletion in everybody. 
They're like, oh, I'm trying to do God's will. It's so hard. Oh my gosh. Now listen, I, look, I get it. Some of you are like small group leaders and you have literally had a small group in your home for the last nine years or something. And you're like, Nick, it is kind of hard. Okay, listen. There are real costs in our, like, it, with our physical energy and our work and how we, like, how we spend our time and how we open up our homes and how we keep time set aside. There are definitely costs. But what Jesus is saying is, if we remember him, if we really understand why we're doing this, if we're walking in the spirit and in the truth, there is a well of life that will well up and overflow. And we won't find ourselves as depleted. And if what we are finding is ourselves profoundly depleted, either A, we've lost our way in how we believe in the Son of God, or we need some counsel and some spiritual direction from somebody wise and spiritual to get us back on track, because that really isn't the plan of God. Is the plan of God for you to get your head chopped off? Maybe. Maybe. Is the plan of God for you to be so emotionally depleted that you can't give to anybody because there's nothing inside you left? No. That's an important distinction, right? All right. We'll conclude with this. Not only does Jesus not get a drink, <laughs> right? They've walked a long way, and the disciples come back with food, and they don't want to broach the thing with the woman. And so they go, okay, Jesus, why don't you, will you eat something, right? All of a sudden, they're, they're, they're not Jewish, they're Italian moms, right? It's like, eat manja, you know? It's like, let's have something, right? And so Jesus is like, you guys, I, like, I have food you have no idea about, right? Just, just like the I have living water thing, Jesus is toying with them, you know? And they're like, what are you talking about? Who brought this guy food, right? And he's like, you guys, and I don't know if he's looking towards the village or what, but he's like, he's like there's this saying, four months more until the harvest, which would mean something like, there's nothing we can really do now, right? In four months, there'll be a harvest, and then we'll take in the harvest. It's a saying, right? Now's not the time, right? I would bet that a lot of you think that way about Madison, about your job, about your family, about America, about Iran. Now's not the time, right? He said, let me tell you, the field is white for harvest. And the, the harvest will go out and harvest with the sower. There's this place in the, in the Old Testament, speaking of the time of the Messiah, he said, he said, the ground will become so fertile that the sower will be planting the seeds, coming right behind him, cutting the grain. It'll be that fast. It's like, hey, guys, hurry up. I'm catching you. Right? And now, will there be a millennial kingdom in which farming is literally that? I have no idea. What I do think is the case is that Jesus is pulling on that meaning and saying, no, it's more like that than you think it is. If you have this life of God in you and we go out into the place where we don't think there's any harvest at all, he's like, you'll be surprised. But it's our worldliness. It's our fear. It's our, I mean, think about this. The more private we are about our faith, that's another version of what this woman did with all the men. We are controlling our future. We're positioning ourselves in certain ways. We're trying to— But what Jesus is saying is, listen, I don't know how many miles I've walked, but watching that woman who came out of here with shame run back to face the people that hate her to tell them the reason that she knows I'm the Messiah is because I brought up all of her embarrassing divorces— 
And she's going to go tell those people, this guy knew about all my divorces. He knew. Can you believe this? He knew about all my divorces, every one of them, Bill and John and Aaron and Sarah and all these people. And like, and she's like, can you believe, he must be the Messiah because you guys who hate me don't even know. I mean, I don't even remember all the names of my husbands. You know, this guy knew I had five, right? And there are all these people who are like, oh my gosh, they're listening to this woman that they probably think is like the worst woman in their village. And they talk about her all the time. Her name is like, don't be like Alice or whatever, you know? And they're like, oh my gosh. And then they all come out together and then they all get saved. And then like for two days, he and the disciples are with the Samaritans and all these people come to believe. And she's, and, and notice when these people come to believe and Jesus is right there, like Jesus is so fantastic. They turn to her and say, we don't believe anymore just because you said, but because we see. Which means they believe in Jesus directly, but what it also means is she's now with them again. Do you see? She's one of them now, again. She's not going, now, is she going to have to go back to that well to get water again? Yes, she is. But there's going to be a geyser of living water and all the women now who go out to that well together and enjoy it. Because all of our life is menial, friends. All the most important things in our lives are repetitions and menial. And the most valuable things are the people in front of you who are boring half the time when they talk. And you have to see them for what they are. And all of that getting water and eating food and doing stuff is all simple, little, not exotic. It's not vacation. But it's what life is made up of and the only way that you can bear with and be filled with the good of real life is if in you there is a geyser of living water that comes from seeing in the Spirit and knowing the truth. And if in that life you can turn to other people who actually matter and love them in such a way as that your stomach is filled with the spiritual satisfaction of doing the will of God because it's good and beautiful and what you're made for, and you would do it for a thousand million years. And that is what it means to believe in the Son of God. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that you'd help us to just drink in the truth of, of John 1 through 4. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us the capacity to be functionally reborn in the Spirit. Even those of us who have received the second birth by believing and trusting you and receiving forgiveness of our sins, we pray that functionally that you would work that rebirth so that we can see your kingdom. And we can enter it in what we do. And that like John the Baptist, we're happy to be made less that you could be made more. And like this woman, we would be so willing to be turned to you in honesty and to come to you in the Spirit that we could be so filled. And we want to be like Jesus as he advertised himself to his own disciples and said, you guys have no idea what it's like to be full. You've never been satisfied in your life. We want that living water. We want that satisfaction. Give us the food that is rich. The life you give through your servant David, Jesus the Christ. Help us to believe in the Son of God.